Good afternoon, everybody. Special welcome to any guests that are worshiping with us, as well as those watching online. We have uh, two announcements this afternoon. We've received attestations for Peter and Wilhelmina Tornvliet, as well as Cynthia Admiral. We pray that, pray that you guys will be a blessing in this congregation, um, and we welcome Pastor Tim to lead us in worship. Good afternoon. Such a privilege to be here, gathered with you, to worship our awesome God together. And as we come to worship, I ask that you'll please rise for our call to worship. Our call to worship for this afternoon comes from Isaiah 55, verses 6 to 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. As we come together to answer this call to worship, we come humbly. So we come confessing this. Congregation, where does our help come from? Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin by singing together Psalm 122, stanzas 1, 2, and 3.
short teaching catechism uh, that we have in our house. Uh, It summarizes the purpose of the law for us in this way. It says that the law exists to show us the holy nature of our God and the sinful nature of our heart and thus our need for a Savior. And that is so true. That's why we typically read the law at the beginning of our worship each Sunday. But there's another use of the law, isn't there? Uh, After we're convinced of our need for a Savior, after we're convinced of our need for Jesus Christ to follow the law for us, is there no use for the law left? No, there's still another use that's incredibly important. The law was also given to God's freed people, like us, to teach us how to live with God, with this holy God, and for this holy God. And with that in mind, let's read together the Ten Commandments as found in Exodus 20. And here we'll see God's description of how we can begin to live with a God who is so holy, even though we're people who are so sinful. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. Thus far, the reading of the law. Let's sing in response, Psalm 65, stanzas 1, 2, and 3.
before our awesome God in prayer, and we'll ask him for a blessing on our worship here uh, the beginning of this afternoon. Let's pray. Wonderful God and Father, we come before you now as the household of God, the church. What a marvelous truth that we together are a family, and not just any family, but we are your family. Lord, we just heard your law, and we were reminded that once we were sinners— But now, by the grace that you've shown us in your Son, Jesus Christ, who kept the law perfectly for us, now in him, we're not just sinners, but saints. Once we were just enemies, but now we're your sons and daughters and friends, living with you in your house, living with you in your presence. Thank you, God, for bringing us out of slavery, out of the wilderness, and into your presence in your house. Now that we're here, we ask that you might not leave us as we are, that you might teach us more and more by your word, by your law, to live with you. Now that Christ has worked so hard and paid such a great price to bring us back to God, don't let us go on living as though we're still far off. Rather, by your word and spirit, may you, our God and Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our ways to your law. Make us increase and abound to overflowing in love for you, and for one another, and for all. And in this way, establish our hearts to be blameless and holy in your presence. Lord, please help us continue to grow. Grow in our knowledge of you. Grow in our worship of you. Help us that begin already now. Lord, please help our worship be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name alone we pray these things. Amen. Our scripture reading for today comes from Luke 12, verse 22 to 34.
Luke 12, verse 22 to 34. And he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet, God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's sing together in response to God's word. Psalm 84, stanzas 1, 2, and 5.
have your Bibles with you this morning, let's turn to Haggai chapter 1. For the next few weeks, we'll be starting a short sermon series on the little book of Haggai. If you do have your Bibles, it's kind of a tricky one to find. It's only a couple pages long. Uh, The easiest way is to go to the book of Matthew and then just turn back a, a couple books. It's one of the last books in the Old Testament. So Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and on beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Thus far, the reading of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, I wonder how often, if ever, you think about eternity. There are different ways to think about eternity. You can think about it theoretically as a concept. How does eternity work? In heaven, do we become timeless like God himself? Or do we just stay kind of like we are? 
You know, the days start coming and they keep on coming forever and forever and forever. Or maybe if you think about eternity, you're a little bit more practical-minded like me. What exactly are we going to do for eternity? Of course, we'll be praising God and that sounds wonderful. But maybe after year 253, things will feel a little bit stale. So what's this eternal worship going to look like? This worship that never gets old. When we have 253 years, we'll be, still be excited for an eternity left to go. Or I wonder if you've thought about eternity. Maybe you've thought about this. I hope that you have. Have you thought about dwelling with God forever? Living with the one that we love most. Living with the one who loves us the most. More than we can even imagine. That will be so wonderful. To have a a feeling of perfect love and satisfaction and joy forever. And let me expand your excitement here for a second. Because there's something even more amazing if you really think about it. Of course, we want to dwell with God forever. Of course we do. What could be better than living with God? But think about this for a second. God also wants to dwell with you forever. He wants to dwell with you forever. He's never going to get sick of you. We understand the desire from our side, but why would God ever want to live with me, let alone forever? What do I add to the equation? The mind-blowing answer is, you really add nothing at all. Not really. God doesn't love us because of what we can give him, but God wants to dwell with us because he wants us to have life and have it abundantly with him, the beautiful triune God who made us and brought us to himself. God wants to dwell with you and with me forever. That's his uh, deep desire. And that was true from the first moment he created human beings. And we can see that from the first moment human beings ran away, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. They turn their backs. They run away from God. They hide. And God goes after them. He calls out to them, where are you? He says, in a sense, we're not dwelling together anymore. And something is wrong and we need to fix it. In fact, he says, I need to. I'm going to fix it. Because I want to dwell with you forever, for eternity. The most amazing thing about eternity is not just that we get to live with God forever, but that he wants to live with you and with me forever. He wants to love us and pour out his love on us without end. And the good news is that we don't just need to wait for the future till our earthly deaths to start enjoying this. But our God already wants to dwell with us right now. We see that so clearly in this passage. He doesn't want it any other way. And so often, because we're busy thinking about other things, because we're busy being distracted by lesser things than dwelling with God himself, then we forget about the greater thing, the greatest thing in life, the most important thing we have to do. And when we do that, we're doing exactly what God's people have always done. Adam and Eve in the garden, or the Israelites in Haggai's day. And so God comes to his wandering people uh, with a warning. Just as he comes to us this afternoon with this challenge. His challenge is this. Consider your ways. And we'll examine that in two parts. First, we'll see the people's satisfaction, and then the Lord's dissatisfaction. Now that's actually a typo. The dissatisfaction is not supposed to be in sarcastic quotes. 
The dissatisfaction is real. The people's satisfaction, now, that's a little bit more sketchy. And so we're jumping into this little-known book. I don't know how much you know about Haggai. Uh, I truthfully didn't know that much about it uh, when I began digging into it. But it's a really beautiful book. But since we're just hopping in here cold, we need to do things a little bit differently than usual. We need to spend a little bit more time trying to wrap our minds around the context because Haggai just kind of comes up out of nowhere here, right? But to begin, we need to realize three different things. So first of all, we need to recognize, leading up to this, the people's incredible disobedience. So at the time leading up to Haggai, the Israelites had been unfaithful to God for decades, even centuries. They ignored his laws. They looked to foreign superpowers for salvation, and they worshipped other gods. So time and time again, God sent prophets to warn the people. And not just that, God sent fierce punishments to try and bring them back. God sent droughts and wars and famines and plagues. But the Israelites refused to turn to him. They kept on turning further and further away. And so, God sent the most devastating punishment of all. God gave them what they wanted. God allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed. He allowed the temple to be thrown into ruins. He allowed the best and brightest of the Lord's people to be taken into exile in Babylon. The people had tried to run away from God. And eventually the Lord sent them away. Sent them away from his city, his land, his temple. Seemingly from his very presence. The first thing we need to realize is the people's disobedience. Secondly, we need to realize God's mercy. Because as the disobedience isn't directly before Haggai, but it's a little bit before Haggai, about 70 years before Haggai. God allowed his people to live in Babylon for nearly 70 years. But God hadn't forsaken his people. He was still at work. And so he raised up a greater empire. Uh, he raised up Cyrus to be king over the empire of Persia. And when Persia defeated Babylon, these are some of the first things, one of his first acts It was God so clearly at work. We read about this in the first verses of Ezra chapter 1. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And Cyrus proclaimed, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. God was dissatisfied with his people living far away from him. He wanted them back. This was just a means to an end, to get his people to stop running and to come live with them as he wanted them to. So when Persia takes over, God's people are allowed to go free. They had the king of Persia's permission, and even his command, to go to Jerusalem and build the temple where God could live with them once again. This is incredible salvation. And so a faithful remnant eagerly returned. Some people, they were used to life in Babylon. They, They didn't really see the draw of going back to Israel God's land and God's people with God's temple. But by God's grace, a remnant, they wanted nothing more in their life. It seemed like they had learned their lesson from God, from the punishment, from being sent away. This remnant wanted to go back to Israel. They longed to be back in the land of God. They didn't care about the lives they had built in Babylon. They wanted to go back. The Lord had healed their hearts and turned them back to what really mattered. And they craved to live with him once again. They wouldn't be happy with anything else. And so they packed up their things and traveled a thousand miles back to the land the Lord their God had given them. 
And when they arrived, they took all that they could, resources from Cyprus and from uh, themselves as well. And the first thing they did when they got back to Jerusalem was they set up the altar of the temple and they worshipped. They were overjoyed. They were so happy. They had nothing. They had to start over, but they could not be happier to be back in the presence of the Lord their God. And they didn't stop there. Immediately they set to work on the temple. And as soon as the foundation was laid, we read in Ezra, Levites blew uh, trumpets. They clashed cymbals. The people, you can imagine the scene, the throng of the remnant, these poor, weary people. But they sang their hearts out, praising and giving thanks to God. The air was filled with the sound of singing and shouting and weeping. They were weeping. They were so happy to be back with their God. Who cared about anything else? Why did they react like this? We need to understand the temple wasn't just a building. This wasn't some construction project. The Israelites' entire spiritual identity revolved around the temple. It was an act of worship that they were doing here. They were proclaiming by building this temple and offerings, uh, sacrificing offerings on the altar that the God of the universe, who created all things, that he was their God once again. <clears throat> he had forgiven them once again, and he had delivered them and brought them back again. He was still their God, and he, the Lord of the universe, wanted to dwell with these sinful, messed up people. And all they could do is worship and celebrate. Rebuilding the temple, the people were showing that they too had the same desire. They wanted to dwell with God too. The temple was where they could meet with God, learn about him, pray to him, sacrifice to him. It was their greatest desire, their first priority, to see the temple restored. Then the third thing that we need to know of the context. All this zeal, it was interrupted when life happened. You know how life happens sometimes? Opposition came to building the temple. The people who were living in the land, they, they started discouraging the people. They started threatening the people. They wrote slandering uh, letters to the political leaders and, and told the political leaders that these people rebuilding the temple, they were a threat. They even bribed officials against them. You can read about all that in the book of Ezra. And we need to remember, this was a small group of Israelites, old and weak, They needed to start from scratch. They needed to build houses and get jobs. They needed to start over. They needed to provide food for themselves. They had so much before them to do. Money was tight. Taxation was oppressive. And with all this opposition, they had all this zeal to worship God. They wanted to live with him and and pray to him in the temple once again. With all these other burdens crowding around them, one day the rebuilding stopped. And one day turned into two days, two days into a week, a week to a month to a year, then 10 years, then 16 years. And all that time, the temple lay in ruins. But the people, the people could still meet with God, right? They were still God's people, and he was still with them. And God in his temple, they would say, God in his temple were priority number one. They came back here to live with God. That that was top of their mind. They knew that their worship wasn't ideal and that someday it needed to get better. And they would say that eventually it would. Eventually, we will rebuild the temple. And now we finally get to our text. 
Because after all this time, after all these things that happened, now for the first time, the Lord sends prophetic word to his people once again through the mouth of Haggai. He's going to talk to his people once again. What will his message be? Well, it's this in verse 2 of our text. These people, says the Lord, say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The message starts with these people. Ouch. Note the biting criticism here. The people who left everything in Babylon to come live in God's presence once again. God seems to be casting some doubt. Are you really my people at all? These people? My temple is in ruins. Do you really want to live with me at all? We still want to, they would say. We're still going to. It's priority number one. But 16 years have gone by nothing. It's what their mouths still say, but their actions are still telling a very different story. And so God firmly and graciously calls them out. He says, consider your ways. Twice we read God's command in this chapter, consider your ways. And this isn't just an intellectual exercise he's calling them to, thinking or considering. Literally, it says, set your heart upon your path. So with your mind, with your heart, with your soul, look at the way that you're walking. Look at your day-to-day lives. This is a call for the people in Haggai's day, but for us too. Because you say that dwelling with me is priority number one. It's all you want. It satisfies all of your desires. But what is actually your top priority each day again? How do you actually walk? You say I'm first in your heart, yet every day you come up with excuses for why it's not yet time to build my house among your houses. And so then God asks, he asks tongue-in-cheek, okay, you say it's not yet time, well, think about it for a minute. What time is it? He says in verse 4, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? In other words, you say you can't do it. You can't work on your relationship with me. You can't put me first. You say you don't have the time or the money or the resources to focus on it. But look at your ways. What are you actually putting first? Apparently, these people were putting panels on their houses. The fancy, even luxurious wood paneling. It's a rare word. We usually only read of it in the houses of palaces, of kings. Even the house of the Lord in some places. These people, they didn't have time to work on their fellowship with God. But they were putting panels in their houses instead. So God calls them out. Deny it all you want, but this is not a lack of resources. It's a lack of desire. When it came to dwelling with God, the people had somehow become satisfied. Something that never would have satisfied them before. That They set up the altar and the foundation and they were thrilled, not because that was good enough. They wanted to keep on going. But after a while of living with just the altar, just the foundation, it seemed good enough. It was working out. They had other things to do. God's people were satisfied. And aren't we, too, so often the same way? I don't know about you, but often I have seasons of zeal. I have sometimes where, rightly, I am so excited about our God. I'm so excited about Jesus Christ and his love and his care for us. 
And at those times, we have such a strong desire to be closer to God. We want to draw near to Him and have Him draw near to us as well. We want to feel His presence more deeply than we ever have before. We would long to know God's Word better. We want to read more and pray more and get more involved in the church. We want to be a better Christ-like example for our wife or our husband, for our children, for our neighbors. And maybe we work hard for a little while, but then real life comes up, right? And we're not happy with it, but we've got other things to do. And so we, we lay these things aside, but just for now. It's still priority number one, right? But we just don't have time right now. And the warning here is that all too often, it's not just for now. We make excuses, often good excuses. These people had some good excuses too. They were weak, they were tired, the opposition was fierce. They had a big move, a new start. The list goes on. But so, they settle for just a flicker of intimacy with God. Just a glimmer of His blessings. But then they get content with it. Other things take priority, and before long, they're not even longing for growth anymore. They're not longing to bask in God's presence and His love. This week I came across something written by Paul Tripp. As you might know, Paul Tripp, he, he's a pastor and an author. Uh, but Paul Tripp doesn't preach very much anymore. Instead, he goes from place to place to struggling churches and struggling Christians, and he works with them. And you can imagine, during this work, uh, he's seen a lot of different things. And by God's grace, he, he's helped a lot. <clears throat> but Paul Tripp says is that he is absolutely convinced that the number one crisis in the church today is that we are all too satisfied. He goes on to write, we're too satisfied with who we are, with where we are, and what we're doing. We're satisfied with just a little bit of biblical literacy, aren't we? We're satisfied with just a, a few coins in the offering plate. We're satisfied with quick morning devotions once in a while. We're satisfied that we don't act out most of our sinful desires. We're satisfied to be mere consumers of the work and worship at church rather than committed participants in it. We're satisfied to hear about and think about dwelling with God rather than to actually enjoy dwelling with him each day again. So God's people had convinced themselves that even with God's house lying in complete ruins on their doorstep, they were satisfied. Things were somehow good enough for now. But then God comes and he rebukes them in his mercy. He comes to his children and reveals to them, no, things aren't fine. And he also reveals to them, no, you aren't satisfied. I wonder if you noticed that when we read the passage. It's remarkable. The Israelites thought they were satisfied without the temple, but their decision to neglect the presence of God left them deeply dissatisfied, didn't it? Look at verse 6 with me. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. The people thought they were satisfied, leaving their worship of God, their relationship with him where it was, and chasing after other things. But the other things they were chasing could never satisfy them. Not even close. It was like collecting money, trying to grab it all, put it in a bag. But the bag's full of holes. 
They can never get enough. They can never get what they're looking for. Finally, God says in verse 9, God and his temple were neglected while each person tried again to live without God and busied himself with his own house instead. And we can so easily fall into the same trap. Maybe some of us are stuck in it right now. We have a time of zeal. We want to be closer to God. We know what we need to do. We need to use God's means of grace. We need to listen to the preaching and pray for the preaching and dig into God's word alone and with others. We need to spend time in prayer. Of course we do. We need to near, be near this God who's uh, calling out to us and drawing near to us. But other things come up and we stop. Deeper communion and dwelling with God can wait. And then so often, definitely later, turns into probably never. And this is so dangerous. We need to realize even the faithful remnant fell into this trap. These people were committed to God. We heard about that earlier. They had just given up everything to go back to God and to rest and bask in his promises. They had sung and wept for joy. As we read, they're mentioned over and over again. This included the leaders of the people too. Zerubbabel, the governor from the line of David, and Joshua, God's high priest. Even they got too busy and it just wasn't a priority anymore to set up God's temple so they could worship and dwell with him there in his courts. And so they, so they prove that Jesus is right later on when he says that you cannot serve two masters. It can't be done. And so the call here is clear. Our priorities need to be straightened. Or many times, uh, in many instances, our priorities need to be flipped, don't they? Uh, we, uh, we need to take a page, uh, fittingly, since it's Reformation Day coming up. We need to take a page from Martin Luther uh, out of our book. So Luther was so busy, right? If you've heard anything about his life, it was that he was a workhorse. He was busy all of the time. He was doing so much work reforming the church. And one time he famously said, apparently, I have so, many, so much business to do, I cannot go on without spending three hours in prayer first. That sounds like the exact opposite of what I usually say, doesn't it? Yeah, I would love to spend some time in prayer, but... I, Lord, look at all the stuff I've got to do. It's going to have to wait. But this is such a beautiful picture. What an attitude of humble dependence on the Lord. Because Martin Luther has it right here. Martin Luther looks at his agenda, at his calendar, and he has so much vitally important work to do. He simply cannot do it without going to God first. He knows he needs his help. He can't do it without him. And just think of it, brothers and sisters, if only the faithful remnant had this perspective, they could have. They should have, right? They, they had just come back. They were wearied and weighed down. They had so much hardship starting a new life, so much opposition on every side, so much uncertainty. And their reaction, so often like ours, is they take God and they, they put him on the back burner. If only they had put God to the forefront if only they had said, we have so much struggle, so much uncertainty, we don't know how we're ever going to live. We don't know how we're going to provide ourselves. We don't know where we're going to live. We, we don't know how we're going to build a temple during all this with all this opposition. Well, what are we going to do? What we're going to do is we're going to pray. We need God more than ever. We can't turn our backs from him. We have to run to him. We need fellowship and intimacy more than ever. We need to hear from him and rely on him, and we need the temple, and we need it now. So let's work and let's pray that God would do as he promised and bring us to dwell with him again. This is what he promised. This is what he called us to do. 
And likewise with us, uh, as we look at our busy schedules, we see our mounting tasks and obligations. Uh, some of us are called to be husbands and fathers, uh, others mothers, wives, employers, employees, students, Christians, church leaders. You think of these high callings and all the work that comes with it. Sometimes just looking ahead at the week, doesn't it just feel exhausting? How are we going to do all this stuff? We're so busy and we're so easily distracted and we're so tired and we're so sinful. How are we supposed to do this, God? When overwhelmed by it all, we don't need to press pause on devotions. We don't need to run away from worship services. It's then that we need God more than ever, don't we? We need to draw as close to him as possible. We need time in the word and in prayer more than ever. But as we so often do, the Israelites too, they turned away from God instead, trying to find contentment, living far from him, getting all their work done themselves. But the good news here is that while they were content away from God, God was discontent. He was dissatisfied without the quotation marks. He was actually dissatisfied with the Israelites' chosen living arrangements far away from him. And we need to realize, of course, it's always valuable to think about what could God have done here? How could he have reacted? Well, he could have seen that once again, the people were turning away from him as they had time and time again for centuries before this. He could have mentioned that they had just spent 70 years in exile and seemingly they had learned nothing. They came back and immediately they started doing their own thing and turn away from God again. God could have turned away from them too. He could have taken away their presence now and forever. But he doesn't. Instead, God comes to them and he convicts them. He rebukes them. He calls them out. And that is the, the greatest mercy God could have shown, isn't it? So often when God convicts us, when he calls, them out, uh, calls us out, when our, our conscience starts pricking us during a sermon or during Bible reading or just as we're going by our own business, we can get annoyed, can't we? It's not comfortable. We don't like it. It doesn't feel like mercy. It feels like judgment. But this is God being merciful, isn't it? Even though it seems unpleasant. Because the other option here is that God does not warn the people. He looks at them, wandering away, and he just lets them go. But our God won't do that with his people. He's got a great plan to bring them back to him for all of eternity. He wants to save them. And so what he does here is he sends the prophet Haggai to them. And maybe you can read through the text again later and just note all the times. It says that this is the hand of the Lord. It's Haggai, the prophet of God, with the message of the Lord in hand. It's the Lord saying things. The people, when they eventually listen, spoiler alert, when they eventually listen, they listen not to the voice of Haggai. It says they listen to the voice of God. God keeps on calling them, calling them, calling them back because he wants to dwell with them. He wants them back. And so in verse 8, God tells them that even before this, he was starting to call them back. God tells the people in verse 8 that um, the reason that their recent harvest was poor was it was supposed to be a warning sign that they were wandering from him. He tells them in his word in Deuteronomy chapter 30, or 29 and 30 that when your uh, droughts start coming, when your crops are poor, this is a warning that you're not living rightly with God. 
And when the people brought home their hard-earned distractions, God says he simply blew it away. They were still discontent. Instead, God calls them to drop what they're doing. And in verse 8 again, he calls them to go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house, that I may take pleasure or delight in it and be glorified. And so we need to think for a second, does God really need these poor people's money? Does he really need their hard work? Does he really love to give poor harvests to his people? Of course not. What's God trying to do here? What God wants, more than anything, is the hearts of his people. He wants their hearts. He wants their lives. He wants them to come back to him. He wants them to live with him and show that they're living with him. He wants them to delight not in stuff, but in him. And he wants his people to do something simply because it will delight their Lord and bring glory to him. There the people could find true contentment, true satisfaction. Not by building their wood-paneled homes away from the Lord, but by building a home to commune with the Lord. God's calling them away from their stuff and back to him, the one who gave them their stuff in the first place. And I want you to notice that Jesus does the exact same thing in the passage that we read, doesn't he? In Luke chapter 12. There Jesus says in verse 22, Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. Verse 30, he goes on to say, All the nations of the world seek after these things. They all want my stuff. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, live differently than the nations. Instead, seek his kingdom And these things will be added to you. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches or moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you follow Jesus' logic here? He is saying that your Father, the God of the universe, who gives all these gifts, who made all things with the word, He's your Father. You think he doesn't know what you need? Of course he does. He wants to hear from you. He wants you to go to him. He wants you to trust in him for these things, not run away from him, put him on the back burner, and try and get these things yourself. Your father knows that you need these things. These things he made with a word. These things he literally gives to the birds, to the flowers in the fields. Don't be so tied up with them. Don't be anxious. It's insulting to our Father, isn't it? He'll give them to us. Trust Him. Trust Him. But this Lord of all things, of all the universe, who makes all these things, He wants to dwell with you. He wants your heart. Give it to Him first. Let Him take care of the rest. And the people hear this message, and they're convicted. They turn away from their stuff, and they run to the Lord instead. And this, we have to realize, this message from God, it didn't change the obstacles that they had. Now, they were decorating their houses, but they still, in all likelihood, were not that rich. They were still a small group. They still had strong opposition. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 5 and 6. But nevertheless, they put God first. They say, yes, we are going to live with you, whatever the cost. And they get to work on the temple. But, But how... How can they do this in spite of all the difficulties, all the oppositions? Oh, well, we can see that in verse 13. 
in verses 14 and 15, the people begin building. But they get one very key message from God in verse 13 before they begin. This is God's message to the people in verse 13. Note the emphasis here. God wants you to trust the words that are coming next in verse 13. So first it starts very dramatically. It says this is the message straight from the messenger of the Lord. These aren't Haggai's words. He's the messenger of the Lord. This is the Lord's message. At the end of verse 13, it says, The Lord himself declares this. What is this? I am with you. I am with you. He tells his people, his busy, wandering people, I have dwelled with you. I do dwell with you. I will dwell with you. Don't worry about the rest. And the spirits of the people are stirred up. Literally, the word is awakened. It's like someone pours a bucket of water on them. And they come and they work on the house of the Lord their God. Their God, notice it says. No more this people, these people. Their God. That's why they can go into this difficult task, in spite of all their weaknesses and failings and hardships themselves. It's because God belongs to them and they belong to him. God himself declares it. And again, opposition does come. Again, maybe read Ezra 5 and 6 later. Because opposition does come. And you know who handles it? The big, strong people? No. Their big, strong God and Father. It says in Ezra chapter 5, the eye of the Lord was on them. So of course, of course they could succeed when they were putting him first. Brothers and sisters, as God's people, God declares the same promise over you and over me. As we go out today, as we go out into this week, let this promise ring in our ears. I am with you. God is radically committed to dwelling with us. He wants to live with you for eternity. He said it over and over again. And he's not just said it, but he's shown it, hasn't he? God has shown it so clearly in Jesus Christ. Our Emmanuel. Know what Emmanuel means? Better learn, Christmas is coming up. It means God with us. God sent his own son down to earth. He didn't send him for a party. He sent him to suffer and to die, to pay for each and every sin, every obstacle keeping us away from God. Jesus Christ himself demolished it on the cross. So we, so we could go back to God. And so, Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to make this happen. And thankfully, we have a Savior who is not easily satisfied. Because even now that our sins have been paid for, he's still working. He won't be satisfied until we're perfect. We're living with him face to face in heaven. Not just for a little while, but for all of eternity. He won't be happy until his nail-scarred hands wipe away every tear from your eyes. And you can see him face to face. This was Jesus' first priority. Let it be our first priority too, dwelling with him. There's no need to fear or doubt that he'll keep his promise. If we put his kingdom first and do what it's best, we can leave him with the rest. We no longer worship in a physical temple. We have no temple to build, of course. But instead, we have something better. In Ephesians 2 verse 22, we read that we, that you, that me, we ourselves are God's temple. Through the Holy Spirit, God dwells in us already. Believers are the temple of God. 
the cornerstone being Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, I beg you, don't leave this temple in ruins. Go to God, the God of the universe, the God who gives you all good things, the God who, for some reason, wants to dwell with you and with me, now and forever. And now I'll end with this. I heard uh, uh, some, some advice from an old retired pastor. And you know how when life happens, well, when difficult things come up, often you'll go to people for advice, right? Or at least I do. I just start lining up meetings. I'm going to get wisdom from everybody. And so, yeah, you'll, you'll have a coffee and talk with your wife. You'll call up your seminary professor or your old pastor, and uh, you'll see what insight they have to give you. You'll work on those relationships and see how they can help you through the situation. Well, this old retired pastor, he, he said, that's good. You should do that. But he said, when you're doing your meetings, when you're making your lists, don't forget to grab a coffee with God. He says that he would literally make a, a pot of coffee, he would go sit down with a cup, and he would spend that whole time in prayer, explaining the situation to God, even though he knows it, asking God for wisdom and for help, asking him to, to lead the way. He wanted to work on this relationship. He wanted to draw near to God so that in the difficulty of real life, God would dwell, uh, draw near to him as well. And so, brothers and sisters, we are looking forward to an eternity when we can't comprehend with Jesus. But brothers and sisters, I beg you, don't wait. Start right now. Amen. Let's sing in response. Hymn 65 stands as 1, 2, 3, and 4.
before our awesome God in prayer. Wonderful, faithful Father, Lord, thank you that you have promised that you will never disown us or depart from us. This is such a comfort, especially if we're honest and we admit that so often in our lives, it seems as though we disown you, we neglect you, we turn away from you. Thank you that all who believe in Jesus Christ were saved by his perfect uh, righteousness, his perfect payment for our sins. And thank you that in your mercy, you didn't want eternity without us, but eternity with us instead. And so you bought it by his own blood. Please, Lord, we ask that you might stir up our spirits as you stirred up the Israelite spirits as well. Make us consider our ways, not just our words. But don't let us find contentment or satisfaction any day until we find that satisfaction with you. Lord, we pray that uh, as a church and as individuals, we might continue to grow into a better temple for you because, Lord, you're so worthy of it. You deserve it. But, Lord, we know that while this will take hard work from us, uh, hard work alone will never cut it. Lord, we can't do this on our own. But even when we work so hard, we know that really it's you working through us. You're the one who gives the growth. You're the one that gives us a success. And so we ask that you might help us to grow as a church, grow in holiness, grow in love, grow in unity. Lord, help us each uh, as members of the body of Christ. Uh, help us to perceive the gifts that you've given us, because you've given us all gifts. Uh, help us to use them for one another's benefit and for your glory. Lord, we are so thankful for this congregation. We're so thankful, uh, especially for new members uh, today. Lord, thank you for Cynthia Admiral, and thank you also for Peter and Wilhelmina Tornvliet. Lord, there are new members in our midst, and we just pray that you will bless them here, that they might truly feel your presence today and each day of their lives. Lord, we pray that the church here, the body of Christ, as it gets a little bit bigger, that we might be a blessing and a comfort and a help to the new members, but also that they might be integrated quickly. They might not be new members for long, but they too might be a blessing to the rest of the body. Because no part can say to the others, we don't need you. Lord, we pray that you'll continue to help this body grow into maturity, into the fullness of Jesus Christ, our head. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who paid such a great price uh, for this church, that we might live live with him, live with you forever and ever, starting now. Amen. At this point in our worship service, we have an opportunity uh, to give our gifts that he so generously poured out on us. We have an opportunity to give back to the Lord physically as well. Uh, And this uh, donation, it doesn't go at all towards the operating budget of the church or anything like that. Uh, But the collection today, it goes towards uh, the work of word and deed.
Lift up your hearts to the Lord and go home in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.